He said, Rook, I said, what's up, coach? He said, you're starting tonight. I said, what? He said, you're starting tonight. I just want to let you know. Be ready. You're starting tonight. And I said, tonight? He said, yeah. I said, against Mookie Blaylock? He said, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> can I start tomorrow night? <laughs> Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stanko running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko, and I am delighted today to introduce my guest, Eldridge Rickasner. We're talking about one of the best players in Washington basketball history, three-time All-Pac-10 selection, first-ever three-time captain at Washington, CBA MVP, and yes, he played eight seasons in the NBA where he shot over 40% from behind the arc. Eldridge, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Thanks for having me, Adam. Hey, I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, but before I get into your history and what you did at Washington and, and in the league and playing against Michael Jordan, I always start out the podcast by asking guests, what is your earliest basketball memory? Oh, boy, my earliest basketball memory. Uh, I would have to say going to the playground and watching my uncles play. When I was a young kid, because I was football was my first love. I, I thought I was going to be the next Les Swan. That was my dream. I wanted to be a wide receiver. The Pittsburgh Steelers was my favorite team, and Les Swan was my favorite player. But I think my first introduction to basketball came from my my uncles, which were on my mother's side. My mother's brother used to go to the, the playground and play all the time, and I used to sit on the sidelines as a little kid and watch them play. Okay, so so you're not Lynn Swan, but you are Eldridge Rickasner is, <laughs> is, is, is how things ended up going. What, when did you first realize, though, that, that you could play this game? You know what, Adam? Basketball came easy to me from the first time I picked it up. Um, I started playing probably, I don't know, I want to say third or fourth grade down here in New Orleans, is which is where I am right now. I'm actually home visiting. We had a league called Bitty Basketball League where they had the eight-foot hoops, and I started off playing on that, I think, about the fourth the fourth or fifth grade, and from the first time I threw it up there, it was going in. So it always came kind of easy to me, and I, I guess that's probably why I ended up falling in love with the sport. Uh, I, I played bitty basketball as well as a kid, and I know there were some great ones who did, like uh, Isaiah Thomas. I know that's how, how he got his start uh, there in Chicago. Love bitty basketball. It's great for the fundamentals, playing on those uh, short hoops. Um, but you ended up, becoming obviously a terrific player in, in high school and you played high school basketball with, with Robert Pack there. Um, so what did you think of, of his potential future NBA player, Robert Pack, future NBA star, Robert Pack? What did you think of his potential at, at the time when you were playing with him in high school? You know what? At the time, I don't, I didn't even know how good I was. I mean, I know I was pretty good for high school because there's a two year gap between me and Robert. My senior year, Robert was a sophomore. And although he started on the team as a sophomore in varsity, he was kind of like the young guy. So he had to pass the ball to guys like me. Uh, so he wasn't really doing his own thing at that point. And, and honestly, I, I mean, 
you know, I had said at that time my goal was to make it to the NBA, but it, it'd be like a kid saying he wants to be president. I, I never thought it would really happen because we were from the inner city, man. We, we, we never had a chance to meet anybody that played in the NBA on a personal level. You know, we saw guys on TV, but it was like, you know, they're on TV, so that can't possibly happen to me. Um, I didn't really get the pitch on Robert until we got to college. When I was at Washington, Robert was at USC. We still had a two-year gap, but uh, that's when I started. He had a chance to be pretty good. But honestly, I still didn't think he would make the NBA because he wasn't drafted. So uh, I think Robert, kind of like myself, was, was a late bloomer. Yeah, that it's pretty unbelievable that you have two NBA players on the same high school team who, unlike today, it's not like the guys knew. It's not like you just brought up that you knew you were going to be playing in the NBA, that you were destined for that, even though that's something that uh, that you you wanted to have have happen. How good were you guys at that time? Well, my junior year, uh, we were really good. I thought that was I thought that was our best team. And then my senior year, you know, we started off great. We were sixteen and two. I can remember it. And uh, I sprained my ankle really bad. And I think we ended up the season eighteen and eight. I don't even think we made the playoffs. But we had a really good team. I think if I could have stayed healthy, we'd have had a chance to compete for the state championship. But uh, I got injured, and it just it just didn't work out. You always hear stories about guys at that at that level at uh, you know playing youth ball, playing high school ball. That you know NBA players always say, "Man, you think I'm good? There's, you should have seen a kid around the block from me." Um, you and Robert Pack playing, you know, future NBA guys, same high school team. Was there anybody in your neighborhood better than you guys? Oh yeah, there were guys on the street that didn't even play organized ball. That was that was tough, man. <laughs> I remember a guy that was, you know, he was he was probably four or five years older than me. His name was James Dean. He was about 6'3". He was left-handed. He was really, really tough, man. Nobody could stop him out on the playground. Um, one of my teammates, a guy by the name of Juan Hall, wasn't only good in basketball, but he was, you know, he was a star quarterback. He was the pitcher. He ran hurdles. He could shoot marbles. He could ride a wheelie on a bike. He could throw a frisbee. I mean, you name it, if it had something to do with athletic ability, he was the best at it, but he just didn't have the grades, man. So uh, college didn't work out for him, and obviously he never had a chance to, to make it to the professional level. That's unbelievable. Well, you you obviously did get a chance to, to play in college, but you go from New Orleans to all the way across the country and end up playing in Seattle at the University of Washington. So what, you, what brought you all the way across the country to, to play for the Huskies? I was being recruited by a guy named Andy Russo who had Carl Malone, which I'm sure everybody knows, at Louisiana Tech University in, in northern Louisiana. They made a run to the Sweet 16. I think they ended up losing or maybe even the Elite Eight. They lost to Oklahoma and Wayman Tisdale. And Andy Russo was the hot new young coach in the country. Marv Harshman at Washington had just retired. Andy Russo took the job out there and asked me if I wanted to come along. Uh, I didn't know anything about about the West Coast. I mean, obviously I had heard of UCLA and USC, but that was about pretty much it. All my buddies were either going to like SEC schools or Big E schools like Georgetown, Villanova, places like that. So uh, he offered me to go to Washington and my dad said, hey, that's the Pac-10. It's a great conference. Yeah, you're going. And I was like, I am? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't even have a decision in the matter, man. My dad pretty much said, hey, it's a great school. You're going to go. And what do you know? I end up at Washington. All right, so what's what's that transition like for you at that point then? Oh, it's big time culture shock. You know, you go from a city like New Orleans, which was predominantly black, to the University of Washington, forty five thousand students, 
About 900 of them were black. So I was I was in complete culture wow. shock, Adam, to be honest with you, man. But, uh, you know, the people were really nice. Obviously, that's still home for me. Um, I love Seattle. But it was that first year was, was a rough year for, you know, African-American kid coming from a predominantly African-American city. I mean, my whole high school was 100% black. My whole district was 100% black. Honest to God, I, I didn't know anybody you know, that was that was a white American outside of a few high school teachers. I didn't have anybody my age that I was friends with. So to go from one spectrum to a completely different one in Seattle, that freshman year was 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 the ultimate culture shock for me. Wow. You, you know, we hear that all the time from people that that they end up in a different culture or they're, they're with people with a different skin color than, than what they were used to growing up with. Um, so what kind of challenges did you face or, or did mentally did you sort of uh, go through as you, as you made that adjustment? You know what? None, Adam. And I, and I think, you know, I say it all the time, man. It's the beauty of sports. You know, sports brings people together like nothing else that I've ever seen in my 49 years on this earth. I mean, you see all the, all the problems with, with race relations and other aspects of life. But when it comes down to sports, teammates don't care what color you are, what religion you mm -hmm. are. If you're fat, skinny, tall, short, they don't care. All they want to know is, can you help us win? Can you play? <laughs> and I think the relationships that I have today with guys that aren't black, it, it comes from, from playing basketball because I wouldn't have never developed those relationships had I not been on a team. So it's, it's, it's one of the things that disappoints me about our society, but it's the other thing that encouraged me because, like I said, when you're on a sports team, man, I, I don't care. Hell, Osama bin Laden could be on somebody's team. If he got a wicked jump shot, they're going to want him on the team. I hate to say that, and I don't want it to come across the wrong way, but it's just the way that sports is, man. I mean, it's just, it's just different. It brings people together for that two-hour time period or for that time that you're on a team with somebody that's from a, you know, from a different country than you or from a different – that has a different religion or of a, of a different race. When you're out there on the court or the field, those things don't matter. Can they help you win is the only thing that you're concerned about. Yeah, is the guy next to you going to compete, right? That's it. That's all you want to know. You don't care about anything else. <laughs> nothing else matters. <laughs> yeah, nothing else matters. And there's no doubt that you could play. Once you got to Washington, I mean, you're third all you, – when you left school, you were third all-time on their scoring list, second all-time in assists, second in steals. Uh, but but you didn't have the the team success that people talk about when they talk about some of the great Pac-10 stars of that era, you know, the, the Gary Paytons of the world, um, or, you know, obviously what Sean Elliott and company did at Arizona, but people still had great respect for you. So what was that like to to have the individual success and be putting up numbers, but but not have it translate to winning games? Well, you know, it was it was hard because you want to win. I mean, I think that's the ultimate that's the ultimate goal. You you want to win, but I think as a player, once you realize you're not going to win, you got to go out there and do your thing. You got to let people know, you know, it, just because you might have a better team, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to get mine. And that's the attitude I went in there with. I I, I thought my senior year of college there was only one player in the Pac-10 better than me, and that was Gary Payton. Whether we had a good team or not, I, I, I tried to bring it every night. I tried to represent the University of Washington as best I could. I mean, I knew we probably weren't going to win the league. But I tell you what, when people left that gym, they were going to say, wow, that kid number five, Rick Hasner, man, he can flat out play. And that's the approach that I tried to take every time I stepped on the court. I tried to represent the University of Washington as well as I could, but I also tried to send a message to my competitors. Yeah, you might have a better team, but guess what? I'm going to do my thing. 
You brought up Gary Payton. How much mm-hmm. how much trash did he really talk, especially while he was in college? He really talked a lot. Everything you hear, probably take that times ten. I mean, Gary was a Gary was a guy that was always talking trash. But I think I think Gary understood marketing a little bit better than I did. You know, Gary <laughs> realized the more trash he talked, the more attention he was gonna get, and that's what he did. You know, I got a lot of respect for Gary now that I look back. I wish I'd have understood the value of marketing a little bit more. Maybe I would have got drafted. You know. Right. Right. Well. What, uh, you know, but what about him as a player, though? We, you know, we, we hear about the trash talk and we, we, you know, we know the name, the glove and all that. And I mean, obviously, phenomenal NBA career. I think it's lost for a lot of people just how good Gary Payton was in college. Sports Illustrated has him, had them as their national player of the year, his senior year. How good was Gary Payton at Oregon State? Gary was tough. You know, Gary was one of the few guys that talked trash, but he backed it up, you know, um, just always competing, man. Half the league was scared of him, man. It was unreal. I mean, what do you he mean was by that? Only six four, but people, were, guys were literally scared of him. I can remember, you know, I had to guard Gary, and then he would guard me. I had to try to score most of our points. I just remember asking a teammate one time just to bring the ball up the court so I can get a break, and he just looked at me like, you know, he was scared to death, and I just was like, wow, all right, give me the ball back. I mean, but that's the kind of that's the kind of mental advantage Gary had over a lot of guys. I mean. I wasn't one of them. We always went at it. I think we probably split most of our games over our career, even though I think our senior year, I think they ended up winning the league and making a tournament. But, you know, we, we always had great battles. I, I hated him in college, though. I, I can't lie to you. I, I didn't like Gary at all because he was cocky. He was always talking smack. And I was just the opposite. I was a guy that just let my game do the talking for me. I never really talked a lot of trash. I just went out there and played. So we, we clashed all the time. And I think our senior year was probably the climax of it. I can remember before the game, you know, the captains would go out and meet at half court and talk to the officials. And I reached my hand out to shake his hand. He wouldn't shake my hand. So that was kind of like, okay, man, I didn't have enough. And we ended up beating him that game. Sports Illustrated was following him around. He was named the uh, he was named Sports Illustrated Player of the Year. But Gary was just a Gary was just a tough competitor that backed it up. Yeah. At that time, I mean, Pac-10 was sort of coming into its own just with teams all, all over the conference. I mean, Oregon State obviously had Gary Payton, but, you know, in 1987, Arizona's the number one team in the country. You scored 29 against them. Uh, what, what do you remember about competing against those Arizona teams, which were pretty stacked? Oh, man, they were big-time stacked. And, you know, the, the thing I remember the most is I had a cousin in town visiting from, visiting from Chicago. Um, he, was, he, he was about 10 or 12 years older than me, and he was telling me before the game, you're going to have 30 tonight. And I'm looking at him like, fool, this is the number one team in the country. What are you talking about? He's like, nah, cousin, I'm telling you, you're going to have 30 tonight. It's a confidence game. So he was pumping me up. And I said to myself, this guy that lost his mind. Yeah, and I went out there. That probably was the best game. That probably was the best overall game of my career. I don't remember what my stats were, but I know up until that point, I think that was the most points scored against Arizona that year. And, and but, but again, Adam, I mean, I know we didn't have a good enough team to beat them. But I just wanted to go out there and represent the University of Washington, show people what I can do. And, uh, you know, they had the great Sean Elliott, who was the, who was the best player that I had ever played against in college. I thought Sean was the toughest matchup. I had to guard him sometimes. You know, Sean was 6'8", but he could handle the ball. He could shoot it. I mean, you name it, he could do it. Offensively, he had the complete package when we were in college. But uh, it was tough playing against Arizona, man. I, we were 0-9. I never beat him, not one time in my four years at Washington. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. But at the same time, I mean, you, you bring up a good point. People always get in that argument, you know, 
what would players rather have? Would they rather have the ring or would they rather have the individual success? But the truth is, in a weird way, the situation that you were in, you actually were in this rare situation where Washington wasn't going to be great as a team. But just your individual success alone, to me, was sort of the start of of Washington having success down the line. And I think a lot of the guys that have come through that program owe you a debt of gratitude because it all sort of started with that with that era that you, you were in. Well, you know, Adam, we uh they they had a great era right before I got there. You know, they had they had the great Jetlift Shrimp. Yep, yep. There. You know, then that followed with, with with Chris Belt. Um and I kinda came on the heels of them, like, you know, because my freshman year I played alongside Chris Belt, who was one of the greatest players in, in school history. But you know, man, I just tried to you know, Adam, nobody ever gave me anything in my life, man. I mean I, I come from the inner city of New Orleans, Louisiana, the Lower Ninth Ward, one of the worst neighborhoods in all the United States of America. And basketball was all I had. You know, I, I owe my life to the game because it kept me out of trouble. You know, most of most of my friends were either smoking marijuana or drinking and getting into trouble, breaking into somebody's house or doing whatever. But all I ever wanted to do was was play ball. And so I, I think basketball helped save me. You know, because I'm no different than the other kids that were down there. But for some reason, I fell in love with the game. And that's all I wanted to do, and it kept me out of trouble. You know, so I, I'm grateful to the game of basketball. You know, I'm grateful to the University of Washington for giving me a chance, you know, to get on to get on the stage where I could be seen. You know, right. um, even though I wasn't drafted, I, I mean, I like to think I had a pretty good career. Yeah, we didn't we didn't we didn't win a national championship, or hell, my my last three years we didn't even make the tournament. But uh, like I said, I tried to go out there and represent the purple and gold as best I could. Yeah, I want to ask you about the end of your Washington career and then NBA, but just something that you hit on. What what do you think at an early age and, and growing up in in such a, a rough area, what was it that drew you to the game of basketball, do you think? It was my uncles. I used to hang out with my uncles, you know, and, and go to the playground with them. And one of my mom's brothers in, in particular, Leroy McDowell, uh, he's always watched the Philadelphia 76ers and Dr. J was his favorite player. And that's kind of like when I got introduced to the game. That's when I fell in love with the game, watching Dr. J, man. And I'm in New Orleans right now. You know, All-Star Weekend just ended, and I saw Doc. I had two jerseys. I've been carrying these damn jerseys around for like six years, trying to get him to sign it. <laughs> and, his, and, his, and his security would never let me get close to him, even though Doc is telling me, hey, Elders, I know you want the jersey signed. I'm going to sign them for you. But that's the guy I fell in love with, with, with uh, Adam. I mean, I would, I would watch the Philadelphia 76ers on TV, and all I wanted to see was Doc get one nice dunk or one nice finger roll or the reverse layup. And then I would stay on the playground for hours, man, trying to emulate Dr. J, trying to practice those moves. And that's the guy who made me fall in love with the game. So Doc and then George Gervin was, was my second favorite player. And I just studied those guys, man. I, 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 was, I would pray to God that I would get to be about 6'7 and be able to dunk and finger roll like those guys. And I ended up being 6'3. But, you know, the love of the game was established then. You know, watching those guys as a kid—that that was my, those were my, those were my idols, man. Those are the guys I, I I love watching, and those guys are great. I see them every year. They're always super nice. They're always kind. Iceman is one of the nicest guys. His security isn't as tight as Doc, so you can get to him. But Doc's a super nice guy. Um, I I love those guys, man, for uh for introducing me to the game of basketball and and, and let me dream that one day that I could possibly play in the NBA. Eldridge, that's incredible, man. You um. You're learning from from some of the best growing up. Now you didn't reach, you know, a full six seven six eight, but you did get to. I've seen you listed as six two six three. How how tall did you really end up end up reaching there? 
I'm six three. Yeah. Okay. Six three. Yeah, you. Yeah, take pride in that. But at six three, you were a, a great dunker. And you've told me that when you when you were in high school, that you weren't necessarily a great shooter. You became a great shooter though at the college level. So what was that transformation like? I'll tell you what it was like. I, I can remember in high school telling you all all I wanted to do was go to the hole, Adam, because my you know, my favorite player was Dr. J. He, he didn't shoot jump shots. He just went to the hole. So that's all I wanted to do. Um, I mean, I could shoot. My shot was really flat. I remember going on my recruiting trip to the University of Washington, and I had a chance to play with, with the college team, even though I was just a recruit. It was open run. I went out there and played, and they had a guy named, named Flozy, who was a seven-footer, and then they had Chris Belt, who was a seven-footer. And I drove to the basket, and I think each one of them blocked my shot, and they didn't even jump. And I started thinking to myself, well, this ain't going to work. You got to learn how to shoot the ball. <laughs> because in high school, even though I could jump over everybody, I just couldn't do that at the Pac-10 level. So my freshman year, all I still wanted to do was just dunk on people. But I realized I had to develop a jump shot. So in between my registered freshman year and my true freshman year, I just stayed in the gym, man. I worked on my shot, worked on my shot. And it wasn't quite there my true freshman year. But by my sophomore year, I had gained so much confidence just going to the gym which was a place called the IMA, the intramural complex. I used to go in there every day and just play with the regular students. Whoever wanted to play, I would just go out there and play with them. And I just got more and more confidence in my shot. And then, you know, you fast forward to my sophomore year. I mean, every time I let it go, man, I had the confidence of thinking that it was going to go in. You know, so, uh, but it was just, it was just hard work. Cause I wasn't, like you said, I wasn't always a great shooter in high school. Couldn't really shoot in high school. Some of, some of my classmates used to make fun of me. Well, all you can do is go to the hole. You ain't got no jumper. But I didn't need it in high school because I was more athletic than anybody else. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. We, you know, some shooters talk about from an early age, they sort of picked up the form and had it going. But at the end of the day, all guys that turn into great shooters, they, they all have one thing in common, and that is they work their butt off uh, at a certain point. In, in order to be a great shooter, you, you have to put the work in. There's just no other way. Well, I'll tell you what, Adam, I, I just called one of my old high school teammates earlier today. His name was Juan Hall. He's calling me right now. I don't know about what. But anyway, he had a book. It was called The Art of Shooting by Jim Lehman. And I took that book from him in 1984. I took it with me to the University of Washington. I read it. I read every page. I used to read it. I used to do all the drills. And he used a term called beef, balance, eyes on your target, elbow in, follow through. And it shows you how you should probably shoot the ball and I used to read that book every night, man, every day. And I'd go to the gym and I'd just work on it. And I'd work on it. And I'd work on it. And at first, it wasn't really comfortable. But after a couple months, I got really, really comfortable with it. And, uh, you know, what do you know? I ended up, I ended up being a pretty good shooter. Yep. Yeah, you could, you could say that. Going back to, to your college, the end of your college run, just, just for a moment, you played another number one team in the country. And, uh, and, and that's, Pretty rare. You don't hear often of, of guys getting a chance to go up against two different number one teams during their 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 run in, in college. But you played against Duke when they were number one in the country in 1989. Yep. A team that featured Danny Ferry, Christian Leitner was a freshman. Quinn Snyder. Uh, what do you remember about that game? The thing that stands out to me the most about that game is one of my teammates did a 360 dunk on Danny Ferry in the game. <laughs> That's the thing that stands out the most. A guy named Deion Brown, who I thought was the best athlete in all of college basketball, he used to jump out the gym. But, you know, when you talk about Duke, the thing I remember is just how great of a defensive team they were. We actually played Duke almost every year, I think. We had a home and away series with them my last two to three years. 
But I just can remember beating my guy. Then there would always be another guy there waiting to help out. And I just remember having a lot of respect for Coach K because I just thought they were just a lot like Ludosin in Arizona. I could beat I could beat my man that was guarding me for Arizona, but there was always another guy there to help out so you couldn't score. And they were just both great defensive teams. So that's the thing I think that stands out most to me about Duke. Duke was just starting their run. Like you said, they had Danny Ferry, Robert Bricky. I remember all those guys. Then later they had Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley. But uh, the one constant in that thing was, was Mike Krzyzewski. You know, just a great coach. He always had a great game plan, man. And it was always tough playing against those guys. Uh, I'll tell you a story. You, you see Cameron Indoor Stadium on TV all the time. And you think it's this great, fabulous arena. But when we went there back in 1989, man, that place was a dump. I was just amazed at how, you know, how cheesy and raggedy it was, unless he just had us in a crappy locker room. But I wasn't that impressed. It wasn't like, you know, you go to Mac Court at Oregon and the, and the place is beautiful, or you go to Pauley mm-hmm. Pavilion and it's absolutely gorgeous. Back then, Cameron Indoor Stadium, it, it wasn't really nice. And that's, I think that outside of the team, that's the thing that stood out to me the most. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. So your college career is starting to to wind down, but that means that, you know, at this point, you've been this unbelievable player, like I said, at, at UW, you know, you, you're one of the best scorers they've ever had. You're one of the best assist guys they've ever had, one of the best steals guys they've ever had. So so all those things are happening. How much are you thinking at this point, I'm going to play in, in the NBA? Well, Adam, I'm a, you know, um... I'm probably about to step on some toes. I'm going to be as honest as I can with you because I know you from doing the shows, the Pac-12 Network. Um, man, my senior year was a rough year. We, uh, my, my coach that recruited me named Andy Russo got fired. A new guy came in by the name of Lynn Nass, and immediately I knew things would be different for me. So I think out of my sophomore and junior year, my senior year was probably the worst year that I had. It got to a point to where we got around to conference play. Almost every team played me a boxing one. Uh, almost all of them, would, I think, with the exception of probably UCLA is the only team that I can think of off the top of my head that didn't. And I could just feel, you know, going into my senior year, I thought I had a chance to get drafted, you know, because I felt like I was one of the better players in the conference. I, my freshman year, I made the all-freshman team. Sophomore year, I was all Pac-10. Junior year, I was all Pac-10. So, obviously, I'm thinking senior year, I'm one of the better players in the conference. You know, really was thinking about competing for player of the year, and it didn't work out that way. I would say midway through my senior year, I could feel my chances at being drafted slipping away. And I, I can feel that the opposing coaches could see it as well because they would come up to me. You know, George Ravin was like, man, you know, uh, if you need any help, just reach out. A couple of coaches said that to me. So um, I kind of knew that I, I probably wasn't going to get drafted because my senior year didn't quite go the way that I wanted. The thing that was most shocking and surprising to me is I didn't even get invited to the seniors tournament. At least I thought I didn't get invited to them. And uh, that was the thing that, that was kind of alarming to me because I, I can remember when all the workouts started coming around after the season was over. I didn't hear anything from, from the coaching staff that was at Washington. And I remember going into one of the assistant coaches' offices saying, hey, man, what's going on? You know, so uh, that's kind of like when I, when I realized the opportunity for me was, was slipping away. You said that you uh, didn't think at the time that you were getting invited to – you mean like Portsmouth? I thought I was getting invited to Portsmouth. There used to be a seniors all-star game that took place in uh, Orlando. There was one in Phoenix. And I just said, hey, you know, you've done enough. You'll probably get invited to this stuff. And then you can show the scouts what you can do. Because I, I, I felt my chances slipping away. You know, the new coach wanted his own players. 
you know, he, he kind of saw me as a ringleader of the old regime. And, you know, he wanted all those guys out. You know, a lot of people out there don't, don't realize that, that, that sometimes these coaches, they put on a show, you know, when they're doing these interviews and, and all that stuff, man, behind the scenes is completely different. And for all the guys that was there under the previous coach, life was pretty much hell for them, and I was one of them included. Did you and the coaching staff have discussions about about your future? No, I had I had one dis- one meeting with the coach early in the year, and that was it. I never talked to him again. Yeah, oh, that's a, that's incredible for a guy of your stature and all that you had done during your your tenure at, uh, at UW. That's just shocking. Yeah, it's shocking yeah. to hear. Yeah, than so, I felt. <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to get into the details of it because it's probably gonna, you know, it's probably gonna, you know, with today's technology, it'll, it, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll probably start some kind of thing. But I, you know, I don't even care if it's on record. You don't have to delete. I'll just say there's a lot of things that took place back in those days before social media, before kids could self-report. I mean, if that if that would have went down in this Facebook and Twitter era and Instagram, oh man, all hell would have broke loose because, you know, but it just was a different time and uh. It was, my senior year was a rough year, man. I, I, I struggled with that a lot, and I didn't really get over it until 1990. I graduated in 1990. I didn't get over it until 95 when I finally made it with the Houston Rockets. Then that monkey was off my back because I knew all along I was good enough. Well, I, just had, gonna... to, I had to fight and scrape and scratch and wait to get there, man. And when I got there, you know, there wasn't a better feeling. Well, I want to talk about about that journey. So, so first, it starts off. You, you're talking about your senior year, the struggles that you had. But I would still imagine that 1990 NBA draft comes around. How much are you thinking in, in the back of your head at that point, that night? Well, I, I guess I can just ask you, what, what do you remember about that night watching the 1990 NBA draft? I remember watching the draft. I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, I think Derek Coleman went number one overall and Gary Payton went number two. You know, and, I, and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, okay, if Derek, Gary Payton is the number two player in the draft, I know damn well I should get drafted somewhere in the second round. Didn't get drafted at all, you know. Pretty yeah. much think I was blackballed by my by my by my coaching staff at that point. There there's no doubt in my mind because there's some guys that got drafted that I know that never played, you know. And I ended up making it five years later. But it, that you know, it probably was the it was the best five years for me athletically. I mean, because I was a guy even though I was only six three, I can run and jump with the best of guys that was six five and under. You know, I mean, I was that kind of athlete coming out of UW. You know, but those years were lost. I didn't make it until the 1995-96 season with the Houston Rockets. So those, those five years when I was probably at my best athletically, you know, I spent in Germany and the CBA and the Global Basketball Association, you know, just, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a tough period, uh, Adam. I'm not going to lie to you, man. It was a real tough period. So, so tell me about that, though. So I know that just so people understand that are listening, I mean, so here the, the draft pass passes by, you, you go undrafted, and then you're playing TTL Bamberg, the Louisville Shooters, Presto Ice Cream Kings, uh, yep. the Yakima Sun Kings. So so yep. take me through your mindset as you're going on this journey. First of all, I, I guess let's start from the beginning. After the draft, what, what's your next move as you're trying to contemplate the rest of your life? Well, you know what? I really didn't know what to do, Adam, because I didn't have a coaching staff that I can go to for, for mm-hmm. any kind of advice. Well, I didn't want to, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was one of that guys. My dad passed away after my freshman year, so my dad wasn't there. I really didn't know where to turn, man. You know, I just didn't. I, I remember going to a local ex-professional player, and I got the worst advice of my life. He told me, "You don't need an agent." 
So I didn't worry about getting an agent. You know, teams contacted me. I ended up trying out with some teams, but I got cut. Uh, I thought I played really well in a couple of, the, couple of the camps. But, you know, back then it was like if a guy was on a team and you played just as good as he did and he had, in, he had a guaranteed contract, well, they were going to keep the guy with the guaranteed contract. So that's kind of how it went. So when I didn't make a team, you know, I came back to Seattle and I was like a deer in the headlights, man. I just I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, I remember picking up a phone and, 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 and reaching out to a guy named Les Hopbegger, who used to be the general manager for the Seattle Sonics. And he says, well, I know a guy in Germany. You know, if you're thinking if you want, want to play overseas, and I just wanted to play, so I said, what the hell, I'll go. I passed up. I think it was a, probably the worst decision I made, though, because I didn't go to the, the CBA because I had heard all the stories about how there wasn't no money and the travel was bad. So I took a job going to Germany, man. I went to Bomberg, Germany, to play for a guy named Terry Schofield, who used to play for the UCLA Bluins, off a phone call from a guy named Les Hopbegger, who used to be the general manager for the Sonics. They took me over there. And I went over there my first year out of school. That's where I played. I played in a, I played in the Bundesliga in Germany. And then how did you end up in the Philippine Basketball Association? I left Germany. Uh, I went over there. I played. I tried to get another contract. They didn't want to give me the money that I wanted. So I came back. I played in a league called the Global Basketball Association. I played for a guy <laughs> named Johnny Newman, who was, a, who was a great scorer, one of the greatest scorers in NCAA history at Ole Miss. Uh, and the, and the league folded. I remember, <laughs> I remember going to the office one day, and they, you know, they pick up my check. They gave me my check. I go to the bank, and when I walked in the bank, the people in the bank were shaking their head like, "No, we're not cashing <laughs> you guys' check." It was hilarious, man. So that that league folded. I ended up coming back home, and I think that's when I, uh, I think that's when I might have went over to the Philippines. One of the guys I had played with in the global basketball league got hurt, and he told a team about me, and they flew me over there to fill in for him. So that's how I ended up. Going down and playing for the Presto Ice King Kings. Yeah, down in the Philippines. Oh, the Presto <laughs> Crazy. Ice Cream Kings. Do you still have a, a Presto Ice Cream Kings jersey hanging around somewhere? I still got the jersey. I still got the shorts. I mean, I averaged 44 points a game, and they told me that wasn't <laughs> enough. I needed to average like 60. And I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, they had a guy, a guy named Tony Harris, who played at the University of New Orleans. I think he was from Gary, Indiana. You know, I had heard about him scoring 106 points in a game, and I said, no way, nobody can score 106 points. And then when I got over there, he had 96 points against my team. <laughs> Damn, they fouled me out of the game. He had like 58 at halftime. It was just unreal, man. Everything he threw up just went in, and he pretty much shot the ball every time down court. So they felt like my little 44-point a game average was, that was anemic, man. That's like averaging six points a game over here. It was crazy. <laughs> oh, everything's out of whack. That's unbelievable. Oh, so, so, but during that time, though, here you are, you're scoring 44 points a game. You're in the Philippines. Again, I, I'm just trying to figure out where you're at mentally. Are you, how much are you I'm thinking? I'm in a bad place mentally because the whole time I'm saying to myself, you should be in the league. You should be in the NBA. And I got people telling me, people that I know, y'all, you're not good enough. You're not, you'll never make it. But I'm thinking in my whole, my, the whole time, man, you just need the right shot. I know you're good enough because I'm dominating these leagues, you know. And yeah, and I, it I, got to, I got to a point. I got to a point, Adam. Um, I never forget it, man. I got. I ended up getting married. I got married in 1993. Me and my wife bought a. You know, we bought a house, and uh, you know, I just was like, I'm gonna go back to the CBA. I'm gonna give it one more shot. And I said, you know, I'm gonna give it one more shot. I was so broke, Adam. I swear to God, because I had broke the house. I had bought the house, and I, we, we were remodeling the house because it was a fixer upper. We couldn't afford anything to move right into, so we bought a fixer-upper. Now, when I say fixer-upper, we needed everything. 
paint inside, paint outside, carpet, new kitchen, new bathrooms, you name it. It needed everything but 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 the framing and the roof. But it needed everything else. The yard was a disaster, everything. So I didn't have any money. And we were in the CBA. I think I was making, I don't know, $900 a week or something. I went out and I bought three pair of white Nike shoes. And then the team voted to wear black. I didn't have enough money to buy black shoes, so I took a Sharpie, a black Sharpie, and I black Sharpie my white shoes. I'll never forget it. I had a pair. Of, our colors were red and black, but because these Nikes were on sale, I bought some white Nikes with a green swoosh. Even though our team colors were red and black, it was all I could afford. And then I took a Sharpie, and I colored in all that white on the shoes. That can't be true. I had the best. I, had the, I swear to God, as God is my witness, if I got a picture, I'll find it and send it to you. I had the best start in the CBA season that year. I ended up winning MVP of the league. But, you know, you, you asked me what my, my frame of mind was. We got to a point, I think at one point I was averaging 27 points a game. I was shooting over 50% from the field. And we would play teams and guys would be like, damn, man, when you going to get called up? You know, you're playing your butt off. When you going to get called up? And I remember having a conversation with my coach. And I said, man, when am I going to get called up? I'm playing better than any damn body in the league. He was like, well, I'm doing my part, and you're doing your part. He said, so figure it out. I said, what do you mean? He said, think about it. I'm calling every team out there. You're playing great. Somebody's dropping the ball. Who could it be? And I said, my agent? And he just kind of looked at me like that with that look. The agent I had at the time just wasn't selling me, man. So wow. I, I, went, I went back to the days in that night. Adam, I'm not going to lie. We were staying at the days in. It was like a truck stop hotel in Yakima, Washington. And I said to myself, I said, all righty, you got to play so well that nobody can ignore you. Give it everything you got for this next couple of months. And if you don't make it, maybe you'll move on with your life and do something else. But I always knew I was good enough. And then and I, I just took it upon myself. I said, all right, I'm going to play so well. They ain't going to have no damn choice but to call me up. And by the grace of God, man, that's, that's what ended up happening. I got a call up to the Denver Nuggets. I mean, I didn't play. But I think in like one game, I got sent back to Yakima. I was devastated. You know, I was devastated, man. Um, I went from being the MVP of the league. I think I was coming off the bench when I got back from my 10-day contract. But I ended up, ended up winning the CBA championship. I ended up being named league MVP. And then after that, I got a call from the Houston Rockets and Rudy Tom Jonovan saying he wanted to bring me in for a workout. And all they had me do was shoot. So, hell, that was a piece of cake. You know, I think right. I shot the lights out, man, in my in my workout, and uh, Rudy gave me a contract offer right on the spot. You know, he was saying, we're going to sign you. I ended up getting a new agent to represent me, um, and I'll never forget, I was standing on the back porch of that house that I told you about, that fixer-upper. It was the next summer we had, and pretty much did most of the stuff we wanted to do to the house. And I got a call from my agent saying, you know, the Rockets is going to give you a guaranteed contract for $225,000 a year. That was 1995. I remember jumping up and down on that back porch, man. Probably one of the happiest days of my life. Yep. Wow. Wow. What What was that reaction like from from your family? At the time, it was just me and my wife there. I didn't have any kids. You know, my mom and stuff was in New Orleans. Um, I just remember being excited, man. I remember standing on my back deck. You know, it was a nice day. It just I was damn near in tears. You know, I'm damn near in tears now thinking about it. You know, yeah. Man, it was a hard struggle, you know. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> I signed with the Rockets and I fly in, I fly into Houston where I have some family. <laughs> and 
And I called my cousin. I tell him I'm in town. I said, hey, man, I had a cousin named Orvin Williams that lived in Houston. He still lives in Houston. I said, hey, Orvin, I just wanted to tell you I'm in town, man. I'm staying down at the Crown Plaza. He's like, what are you doing in town? I said, oh, I just signed with the Rockets. He said, no, what are you really doing in town? <laughs> I said, really? I just signed with the Rockets. He didn't believe it. <laughs> but that's a hilarious story, but it's true. Oh, yeah. that's amazing. And, and the thing is, too, we're – you know, for people who who may forget, we're not even talking about of all the teams that you could have ended up with. We're talking about the Houston Rockets, a team with Kim Olajuwon, Rudy Tomjanovich, championship Houston Rockets, back to back, two times, back to back, back to back. You know Champion what, Adam? If Houston. I could just if I could just say something, man. I don't know who your audience is for the podcast, but if there's any kids out there that's listening to this, you know, never let. Never let anybody tell you what you can't do. You know, never let anybody tell you you're not good enough. The only person that can determine if you're good enough is you. I mean, if you believe in yourself and you're willing to pay the price and work, anything can happen. My life went from being in Yakima, Washington, so I know none of y'all have never heard of, hmm. playing in the CBA on a league you probably never heard of, playing for a team called the Yakima Sun Kings, where I made $900 a week, where we got $25 a day for meal money, where we stayed in truck stops. Well, I can remember one year for Christmas, was eating at a truck stop restaurant because there wasn't any restaurants open. So playing for the world champion Houston Rockets just one year later. Now, if you're telling me that dreams don't come true, Adam, I don't know of a better story than that, man. I, I don't either. I'm, I'm, I'm speechless, which doesn't, which doesn't happen too often, Eldridge, I can tell you that much. I know. And the thing is, you, not only do you make the Houston Rockets, but you're selling yourself short also in the fact that you end up starting 27 games for that team. I think you started over Kenny Smith, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Man, Adam, it's unreal, man. I mean, I was just happy to be on the team. You know, you, you, you practice, you, you're giving the ball to Elijah one on a block. You're passing the ball ahead to Clyde Drexler on a break. He's dunking on people in practice. You know, you, you see Michael Jordan up close. You know, you see Reggie Miller up close. Patrick Ewan, you see all these guys you watched on TV, and all of a sudden you're playing with them. And early in the year, I wasn't playing. But I was playing really well in practice. I was I was shooting the hell out of the ball. And I remember Rudy coming to me one day saying, hey, I see how hard you're working. Just hang in there. I'm going to give you a shot. And I was thinking, well, yeah, he's just talking, you know. So I just kept playing hard in practice. I kept working. And I'll never forget it. We're on the road. We were in Atlanta. I got a phone call probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. The game was probably 7, 7.30. I was getting ready to lay down and take a nap. We had shoot around. And it, it, was, it was coach, and he called me Rook, even though I was 27 years old. I was 27 <laughs> years old when I finally made the NBA. He said, Rook. I said, what's up, coach? He said, you're starting tonight. I said, what? He said, you're starting tonight. I just want to let you know. Be ready. You're starting tonight. And I said, tonight? He said, yeah. I said, against Mookie Blaylock? He said, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, can I start tomorrow night? <laughs> I don't want to start against this guy. He's the best defensive point guard in the league. <laughs> man, I started against Atlanta. I struggled. I don't think I made a field goal because I was nervous as hell. I started the next game. I came where it was. I struggled that game. I was nervous as hell. Then I think we went to the Washington Bullets and we played. Struggled again. Then finally, you know, I, I got it going. But I was struggling so bad. Clyde Drexler, one of my own teammates, and I hope I hope you send this to Clyde. Clyde used to heckle me and tell me I was a practice shooter. <laughs> I said, Clyde, man. I just started starting. Leave me alone, man. I, I, I want to keep my starting job. But he used to hang with me. You're a practice shooter. You make all the shots in practice. You can't make none in the game. But Adam, I honestly was so stunned that a guy from the CBA in Yakima all of a sudden 
was starting for the world champs. And at first I was, I was just overwhelmed, man. Cause I couldn't believe it. That's uh, it, that is so remarkable. This story oh, is just story, man. I swear to God. Clyde it, oh, that is, that is too funny. What, when you, when you do make that leap, I mean, you had said you, you know, you had your 10 day with, <clears throat> with Denver and I think Robert Pack was actually coincidentally on that team when you had your initial 10 That's day. That's who I filled in for. How odd is that? I, Robert was hurt, and I ended up filling in for Robert while he was injured. Yeah, incredible. Crazy. Incredible. Crazy, Small crazy. world. Small world. So, but when now you're a full-time starter at the NBA level, and, and it's something that so few guys who've ever walked this earth can actually say, and, and you can say it, that you were a starter in the NBA and, and for a very good team. What... What would you say for those of us that that will never have that opportunity to be able to play on that floor? What what is the hardest part? What's the one? Actually, let me change that. What what's the one thing you think people don't understand about being an NBA player? They don't understand how demanding it is, how, how, how grueling it is on your body. You know, everybody watch ESPN, they watch the highlights in the top ten plays. They don't understand that tonight you're playing in Houston. Tomorrow night you're playing in San Antonio. The next night you might be playing in New York. They don't understand that people that spent all this money to buy their tickets, you want to go out there and give them a good show. They don't understand how grueling that is. You know, you play an NBA game, most NBA teams leave right after the game, Adam, and they fly on to the next city. You get in at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, whatever it is, and I don't care what time you get in. It may be different now, but in my era, you had practice the next day. Even if you just did a walkthrough, you had to get up and be on the floor at 10 o'clock. I mean, it was, it was really a grueling deal. When you come off the bench, you know, it's not that bad because you're not playing that many minutes. But when you're a starter, oh, man, it was it was grueling. You know, especially as a point guard. You got to pick up the opposing guy's point guard full court. Somebody's picking you up full court. It's a lot of work, man. It was it, it was hard. It was really hard. It really and it's, was. And it's funny. And all you... of a sudden, you're not going up against other second-string guys like you are. You're going up against the best. Now I'm playing against Tim Hardaway. You know, I'm playing against Derek Harper. You know, I'm going up against Gary Payton. I'm going up against the best that there is out there, you know, as a starter. So it was it was tough. But I was up for the challenge. You know, I was just so happy to be out there, man. I mean, I was going to do whatever they asked me to do. So after you finish your, your year in, in, in Houston, you then uh, sign with the Hawks. And you end up playing with the Hawks for two years. Make the playoffs both years. You started games in, in both those th- seasons. Um, and and really, I think that's where a lot of people uh, remember you from on those good Hawks teams with Steve Smith and, and Mookie Blaylock, Lenny Wilkins. Uh, what what are some of your uh, memories from from your time with the Hawks? Yeah, so I finished with the Rockets. You know, the Rockets was going in a different direction. Um, they ended up trading, you know, almost Robert Ory, Sam Cassell, almost everybody, Chucky Brown, because they were planning on bringing in Charles Barkley. So they got rid of me before all that stuff. I had two choices. I had a chance to play with the Lakers or a chance to go to Atlanta. And I'm a Southern guy. I'm from Louisiana. I'm kind of country. You know, I'm not real. I'm definitely not L.A. So my agent wanted me to go to L.A. and I wanted to go to Atlanta. So he got mad and I said, well, hey, man, look, I'm the one that got to be there. You know, <laughs> L.A. is too expensive for me. I'm not a showboat guy like that. You know, Atlanta's more like New Orleans. It's closer to home. I can go see my mom. So I ended up taking an option to sign in with Atlanta, and I loved it, man, because I played for the great Lenny Wilkins. I played on a great team. Now, in Houston, I had to give the ball to Elijah every time, and the only time I got it back is if he got double teamed, because I remember, <laughs> i tell you a funny story. I remember coming down one time, shooting like a 15-foot pull-up jumper, a shot I'd have made, 
a thousand times. And I missed the shot. And Dream told me it wasn't a good shot. I said, what do you mean it's not a good shot? I said, I've been making that shot my whole life. He said, no. If you want a shot, let me know. I'll throw it back out to you. Now I'm the point guard. <laughs> but that's what he told me. So I said, all right, big fellas, that's the way it's got to be. In Atlanta, it was a completely different deal, man. I mean, everybody was kind of involved in offense. Though we had our main guys, and Steve Smith, I think, was our best offensive player. Then Christian Layton and Mookie Blaylock. I mean, we ran plays, and if you were open, they got you the ball. And Houston it was like, get the ball to Dream. Everybody spread out, wait till they double team, then be ready to make down, knock down a shot. Atlanta was totally different. So um, I get to Atlanta, you know, and, and we got a great team, man. We got the Kimmy Mutombo. So you can go out there, you can be as, as aggressive as you want on defense because if you know you get beat, he's back there to swat everything. You know, so that was great. Yeah. But I think even though Dikembe won defensive player of the league, one of those two years I was in Atlanta, I don't remember which one it was, I thought he was the second best defensive player on our team. But I thought Mookie Blaylock was just the best defensive guy I had ever seen, man. I mean, he was phenomenal. So to play with him and Dikembe, oh man, it was it was like it was like being in heaven defensively because you know Mookie would help you out, Dikembe would save everything at the basket, and then I could shoot. So coach used to draw up some plays for me to do my thing. So I think my second year in Atlanta was was the best year I had in the NBA, where I averaged just under ten points a game. And like you said, I I started a lot of those games because Mookie Mookie was injured part of the time. But as far as which team was the most fun for me? It was uh, the Atlanta Hawks, without a doubt. Now, you're playing for Lenny Wilkins, and obviously we're talking about one of the all-time great NBA coaches. But as a player, what do you think made him so great? The thing that made him so great to me is if you didn't know who Lenny Wilkins was, you just saw him on the street somewhere, he just was the nicest person, man. And that's why I had the utmost respect for him. You know, some of those other coaches in the league, I'm not going to say no names, but you know, everybody knows who they are. They're so goddamn arrogant. Everything is about them. Lenny was never that way. He was never that way. And, and that's why still today he does a golf tournament. I can't play golf, but I try to go out and support him just to say thank you because I just always admired the type of a person that he was because he had accomplished it all, man. I mean, that wasn't nothing. Lenny's a three-time Hall of Famer as a player, as a coach, and as a dream team coach. But if you met him, you, 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 he never carried himself like, hey, I'm the, I'm the mm -hmm. SH and the IIT. You know, he was never like that, man. He just was a nice guy. And that's what, I, that's what I respect about him the most. Now, as a coach, he was a great X's and O's guy. He was a former point guard. So I, I, I felt like I can go and talk to him all the time. Because it was some – I really struggled playing the point guard in the NBA, Adam, because I just wanted to shoot. I didn't want to be no damn point guard. I just wanted to shoot. And I knew I was one of the best shooters. I mean, I think every team I played on, I was probably – you just talk about just shooting, not player, but shooting. I was the best shooter in Houston. I was the best shooter in Atlanta. And I probably was the best shooter – in Charlotte. So I just wanted to shoot the ball. And Lenny gave me a chance to do that because we had Steve Smith, who loved to handle the ball. So whenever Mookie Blaylock came out and I came in, instead of me coming in as point guard, I came in as a two guard. And then Smitty slid over to the point, which is what he loved. He loved handling the rock. And they all had enough respect for me to know that I would make shots and get them assists. So if I was open, man, you know, they, they would give me the ball. Yeah. Yeah, that's, again, pretty remarkable. We're talking about a guy that didn't shoot the ball in high school and now you know, no. here you are, one of the best three-point shooters in, in the in the NBA, in the world. I mean, in, in the world. Um, so here's the big one, though. You're playing for the Hawks during, you know, from 96 to 98. And uh, that means you're playing during the, the Bulls era. And you're playing during yep. the time of, of Michael Jordan's greatness. So yep. what, 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 you know, people want to know, what, what are some great Michael Jordan stories that you have to offer? 
I'll tell you first, we matched up with him, Adam. For some reason, man, we just had a good matchup with him. I don't know what it was, but I always felt like we had a chance. Now, obviously, looking back, we didn't because he beat us every time. But, man, <laughs> I just felt like we had a chance. For some reason, with the Kimbe and Mookie Blaylock, we just seemed to play the Bulls well. And I, I can remember – I'll give you some stories as a team first, and then I'll get into the Georgia stuff. But I can remember, you know, in the playoffs, we they obviously had the best record. I think it might have been – it was either 96-97 or 97-98, one of those years. We start off in Chicago. We either went game one. We won game one. And we should have won game two. We should have been up 2-0 going back to Atlanta. But with just under a minute to go, I think about 30 seconds to go, Michael Jordan pushes Mookie Blaylock out of bounds right in front of me and the referee. I'm right there. We're about to double team. He pushes, he pushes Mookie out of bounds. They're about to try to double team it. And the ref calls nothing. We end up losing the game. We end up going back to Atlanta, tied 1-1. And back in those days, they were doing 2-3-2. Two, two. Mm-hmm. And then we end up losing a series 4-1. But I just always thought we played the Bulls great, man. I mean, but Michael Jordan, I mean, hell. I got on Jordan gear right now as I'm sitting on this phone <laughs> talking to you, Adam. I just got so much respect for the guy, man. I mean, seriously. If you want to know about Jordan, I'll tell you, I'll tell you how I feel about it. My, my rookie year in the league, when I played against all the top guys, they didn't really know who I was, so they wouldn't really play me hard. And then after I would hit a couple of jumpers or something, they'd be like, okay, I got to guard this guy he can play. The first time I ever played against Jordan, he was on me like white on rice, man. And I was like, damn, did, it, did, he, did he hear that I said something about him or something? <laughs> so I asked him, I said, well, man, you know, Mike, what's up, man? Why you on me so tight? He said, hey, man, you know, I just want you to know why I'm considered the best. Wow! I just had a lot of respect for him because he didn't have to. He didn't have to come out and guard me like I was Joe Dumars, you know, or I was Reggie Miller or somebody like that. But he did, and that's the way he competed, man. Um, as far as is, stories, and this is and one thing I want to say about that, Eldridge, that this is after you you just said how difficult it is as an NBA player when you're when you're playing with the first team to battle every single night and travel every single night. You can understand now when you watch guys like, okay, he seems to be sort of taking this first half off or he, he's not competing as hard. Oh, here's no, a, Adam, here's, here's, a, here's the greatest wrong, ever coming at Eldridge or Kasner. You know what? I'm going to tell you why I think he's the greatest player of all time. I didn't see Oscar Robertson. I didn't see Will Chamberlain. And I know Kareem is great. That's the, that's, if, if I had to pick four guys that I thought were the greatest players ever, it's Michael Jordan, Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robinson, and Kareem in my book. You know, Magic didn't wasn't didn't play any D in my opinion. Neither did Larry Bird, so that's the only reason why I don't have them in the conversation. But when you talk about this guy was the best in the league on offense, he was the best in the league on defense. I mean, you can't say that about a lot of people. I told you George Gervin was one of my favorite players, but Ice just was an offensive player. You know, but Mike <laughs> was the best on both sides. I'm telling you, Steve Smith was an NBA All Star. One of the best two guards in the league. And when we played against Chicago and Michael Jordan, man, he just struggled because Jordan was just that good. He never took a playoff. Adam, you hear what I'm telling you? Whenever he would check out of the game, I would feel like, man, we got him. But you could just – they didn't have – they didn't have the confidence without him on the floor. And then whenever he would check back in, you could see their confidence just rise. I mean, he was was unbelievable, man. The guy never took a a playoff when I played against him. And when he guarded you – Hell, you felt like you were being double teamed. That's I mean, that's how good. At least that's how I felt. I don't know how other guys felt, but he just felt like he was swarming you, man. I mean, he was he was amazing. He was phenomenal. You, you talked before about about Gary Payton at the college level and how guys were scared to play against Gary Payton. We've heard so many stories through the years of of Jordan having that same just aura about him. 
What uh, what did you witness in terms of of Jordan's just oh, yeah, presence? I saw, I saw it, man. Guys didn't want to guard him. Guys on my team, even when I was in Houston, you know, we we would sub in and they'd be like, "You take him, man." I'm like, "No, I ain't the two guard. You take him." <laughs> Same thing in Atlanta. Guys just was, guys just didn't want to guard him. And I I can remember playing against him on Mother's Day. You know, I I can remember laying in the bed the night before the game. I was like, "Man, you about to play against Michael Jordan on national TV on Mother's Day? Everybody's gonna be watching." Man, you can't let him embarrass you. And I just said to myself, I said, e, you know what? I said, relax, man, because he gives everybody the business. So if he if he gives Eldridge Ricasa the business, what's the big deal? You ain't got nothing to lose. <laughs> go out there and play your butt off. And that's what I tried to do, man. I tried to go out there and I just tried to compete and earn his respect. He was the best. You know, there wasn't no doubt about that. But I just wanted to, I, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to go out there and, and, and play like I was scared and lay down. I mean, like I told you, for some reason, with the Atlanta Hawks team, 96 to 98, we just matched up good with the Bulls, man. I always felt like we had a chance. Now, we never end up beating them in a series, but I, I tell you, I, I just always felt like we had a chance, man. For whatever reason, we, we, we ended up matching up good with those guys. Now, I, I read a story a while back, and I, I want to know how much truth there is to this. I think in one of the playoff games, a guy that you knew fairly well, and that's Steve Kerr, having played against him in college when he was at Arizona, and then Obviously, you know, he was in the NBA for a long time and you guys matched up with the Bulls. So there, there's a story about the fact that they, speaking of giving the business, you were giving Steve Kerr the business in a playoff game. Steve might listen uh, to this podcast. So I was having a pretty good game. You know, I'll say that. I was doing my thing. I think I scored like 12 points in the second quarter and, 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 and cut, cut, a, cut a Bulls lead and they called a timeout. And Steve Kerr was guarding me during that, during that period. And then coming out of the timeout, all of a sudden, I looked, and Michael Jordan was on me. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm here to shut you down. And I just kind of looked at him, and I started laughing. But, yeah, that's a, that's a true story, man. I tell um, you, uh, before the game, I'm, I'm, you know, the starters are all shooting. And normally when the starters are shooting, the bench guys sit down, and we're stretching. And sometimes you talk to the opposing team. So I see Steve, and I'm trying to have a conversation with Steve. And Steve's like, well, I can't talk to you. I'll just – I'm like, well, what are you talking about? What do you mean you can't talk? He's like, well, Michael don't like no fraternizing with the opposing team. And I'm like, dude, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I'm serious. He's going to get mad. So I'm sorry, but I can't talk to you. We could talk after the game. And I'm just looking at him just like, wow. But that's just the type of competitor that, that Michael was. Man, I'll tell you a couple a couple of stories. I think the best I got on Jordan, and I'll start with, the, you know, one was Kimbe had never, he had never dunked on Dikembe. And the press had made this big deal out of it, man, about, you know, Jordan had dunked on all the big men, but he ain't never dunked on Dikembe. And we were playing at Chicago, and I, and I think Steve Smith might have been guard Michael. And Michael beat him going baseline, and Dikembe came over to help. And he dunked on Deke, and he gave Deke his own finger wag. Man, I just thought that that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> then he started talking a little trash to him and stuff. And then I'll tell you, I think the best, best story that I got epitomize what, what Michael Jordan meant to the game, kind of respect people had for him and how good he was, was a, the, the time he retired. Um, Phillips Arena was being built. We had moved out of the Omni in Atlanta. And we were playing in the Georgia Dome because they sold 63,000 tickets to this game. Michael Jordan supposedly last time in Atlanta. Nobody knew he was going to sign with the, with the Wizards after that, but 63,000 people attended the game that we played in the Georgia Dome. We're up one with about 12 seconds to go. Chicago calls timeout. They got the ball. 
We get into our huddle. I'm not in the game. I think it's Steve Smith, Mookie Blaylock, Chucky Brown, Christian Layton, and Dikembe. And Coach Wilkins says, we know where the ball is going to go. So when Michael gets the ball, Chucky, I want you to run and double team it. Steve Smith was guarding Jordan. So we say, all right, our assistant coach, we had an assistant coach named Dick Helm. He hears the game plan. He immediately starts walking to the locker room. I'm not lying, Al. He just takes off. He's walking towards the locker room, shaking his head like, I didn't see this before. Of course he did when Jordan hit that shot on Elo, when Lenny Wilkins and him were coaches in Cleveland. Right. And he starts walking off the court. He's got to walk past our bench. He's got to walk past the Bulls bench. The horn blows. We come out of the timeout. Chicago inbounds the ball. Inbounds the ball to Michael. He breaks out close to half court. Takes one or two dribbles. Chucky Brown starts running towards him to trap him. And Michael attacks the trap, which freezes Chucky. So he splits Chucky and Steve, and it's like 10, 9, 8. Takes a couple of dribbles, pulls up, shoots about a little 12 to 15-foot bank shot off the glass, man. The ball goes through the hoop. Game over. My assistant coach is still walking. <laughs> I didn't find him in the tunnel. He shook his head. He never turned around. He went to the same. But that's just how good that dude was, man. I mean, even when you – we knew – what play they were going to run, where he was going to get the ball, and you just still couldn't stop him. I mean, Jordan is the greatest of all time. He's the best I've ever seen, man. I've, I've never seen anybody as good as him on both sides of the ball. He was, uh, he was phenomenal. Wow. That's, that is, that's special. I love it. I love it. The Eldridge, when, during your time in the NBA, we hear all the time, obviously, about Michael Jordan, the Larry Birds, the LeBrons. Um, is there a guy you can think of that maybe you thought either practicing against or seeing him in glimpses in games that you thought, man, this guy is really special and people just don't realize, like the casual fan just doesn't realize how good this guy is? Yeah, there was, there, there was a few guys. I, I, the guys I thought never got their just due, I would say, I thought Rod Strickland was phenomenal, man, as a point guard. That guy yeah. was tough, man. Because of his off-court stuff, he never got the credit he deserved. Dennis Rodman. You know, I mean, people think Dennis never said a word on the court, Adam. Dennis really? just went out there and played, man. He worked his, never said a word. I can't ever recall Dennis saying nothing to me when we played him. We played him a lot. He just went out there and worked his butt off, got every rebound, played great defense. I don't think he ever made an all-star team. Was just, it's just insane to me. I've never, been, I've never been a guy that want to judge a guy by what he does off the court and penalize him for it by not giving him an all-star appearance because he's a knucklehead off the court. Now, we know Dennis has some crazy off the court issues. But on the court, man, it didn't get any better than him. Uh, another guy I can think of, Mitch Richmond, I thought was mm. tough. I thought one of the toughest two guards in the league because he played in the same era with Michael Jordan, Reggie Miller, and Clyde Drexler. He just never got the credit he deserved. You know? But I thought those are three guys that off the top of my head just, 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 just stick out. Stick out big time. Yeah. Um, I'll wind this down, but I want to ask you, so your time with the Hornets, um, you end up playing three seasons – with the Hornets and, you know, during the Baron Davis era for the Hornets. But um, what some people remember about, about your time there, obviously, was this the crazy year in, in you know, 1999 uh, going into 2000 and you getting this car crash with, with Derek Coleman. Um, yep. what, what happened that night? Man, we all, uh, we all went out to a comedy show. Um, we all went out to a comedy show and – I didn't want to go because I had just had a I had just had a new baby girl, man, and my wife was coming the next day, and uh, I could just remember Baron Davis was the one that asked me to go, and I just remember telling Baron, 
I said, no, BD, you know, I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a, I'm a stay home, man, and be rested because my wife is coming, my family's coming tomorrow. He was like, well, man, come on, man. It's going to be your last time hanging out. You know, you know you're gonna, not going to be able to go nowhere, <laughs> you know, uh, after the night. So I was like, all right, what the hell? We went out, and uh, we were just messing around. I was riding with Derek Coleman, and, and um, for some reason, Anthony Mason was chasing us, and we was just, you know, guys just having fun, man. And the last thing I can honestly remember, Adam, is just taking a turn and going to our apartment complex, and I look out the window, and all I saw was these headlights all over me, man. And then, obviously, we got hit by this semi. The thing, the next thing I remember after that is just waking up in the hospital with a whole bunch of people over me working on me. I honestly don't remember what happened in between, you know. But uh, Charlotte was just – Charlotte was a, was a nightmare for me out of the gate because I never wanted to leave Atlanta. You know, for whatever reason, Atlanta decided, you know, to go in a different direction. And they uh, they didn't re-sign me after the best season that I had there. Um, I went to Charlotte. I got diagnosed. I mean, you know, most people don't know this. This is probably the first time that I'm sharing this with anybody. Um, I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. And it kind of messed with my vision. I was on prednisone. And honestly, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't play well my first year there because, hell, I was seeing two baskets most of the time. Um, and after that, my, my career just never did, it never did, it never did take off in Charlotte. And quite honestly, I hated Charlotte, you know, because of the basketball piece. It was a nice city, but I never really got a chance to enjoy it, man. I'm being as honest as I can. I'm probably being a little bit too honest with you, but I just think, you know, it, it was what it was. I got diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. I think I, I know I had it in Atlanta. I, I felt like what I had was flu-like symptoms, but I still had my appetite. And I, I remember telling my wife, that's weird. And when I went to the doctor, they wanted to give me a colonoscopy. And I was like, no, nah, I'm all right, doc. I'll get over it. It'll pass. <laughs> Fast forward a year later, it wouldn't pass. It ended up being ulcerative colitis, something I still suffer with and fight with today. But I think that had a big effect. Because the one thing I could always do was shoot the basketball. I mean, I, I might have struggled playing point guard and, you know, and stuff like that at points. But I, I never had a problem making shots. And I had problems making shots that year. That's when I knew it was an issue for me. But, uh, yeah, Charlotte just never, never took off. And then when you had the whole Derek Coleman incident, that pretty much was was the ending of my career. I, I never recovered after that accident. I never, I never really got a chance to play again. And then you were still on the team. Was that the same season that the Bobby Fills? Season Bobby died? Fills got killed. Yeah, yeah. It was really so. To put it in perspective for you, it was the worst year of my life because I got in my accident. I don't know if you remember, but Firestone had some tires that were causing problems back then in 1999, and my sister and my mother had a blowout on I-10 freeway coming from New Orleans to Houston. Right around Christmas time, my sister got thrown from the vehicle out of the front windshield onto the freeway. So she was in a coma for two weeks. I found out about Bobby Fields sitting in a hospital with my mother and my sister in Beaumont, Texas, when I got the call about Bobby. Um, that's the same year, the whole Ray Carew stuff with the Carolina Panthers. I mean, this was a yeah. a nightmare in, a nightmare in, uh, for Charlotte sports, but... uh. That was a bad, bad, bad year, man. It really was. Oh, well, I, I definitely don't want to end things on, on a, a, a bad note. Yeah, we so got to want... find some kind of positive spin to put on it, but I don't know what the hell we can after that. Yes. No, no, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. So you also had – so I, I've look, I talked to a lot of ex-NBA guys on the podcast, Don McClain, Rex Chavin, Keon Dooling, um, and, and the one thing all of them seem to talk about is the idea, though, that – just how difficult it is. And that the, I think the average person, again, doesn't realize, you know, you have all these experiences that people don't realize that they think, A, that the league is so glamorous and maybe in parts it is and, and you know, the money's great and all that. But then 
they don't realize how hard it is to leave a game that you talked about you'd been involved with and playing. I mean, it got you out of bad situations as a youth. I mean, you know, and, and, and it's all, you know, so, you know, for you, what, what was that transition like just to go from, from being a player to all of a sudden now you're, you're out in the real world, like the rest of us. Well, I don't think anybody thinks your career is going to end when it does. I mean, I, I know, I know, Every player thinks they still got something left. <laughs> the teams just don't know it, you know? I mean, I, I think role guys think they're going to play longer. Superstar guys think they're going to play longer. I just think everybody thinks you're going to play longer. I mean, for me, I kind of knew, even though I thought I could still play, I kind of knew when I went to the Clippers. Because at that time, the Clippers were like the laughing stock of the league. And it's like, it wasn't hell, but the joke was you could see hell from the Clippers. So when I signed <laughs> with the Clippers, I was like, well, damn, this is it, man. This is the end. And I think everybody doing that, that 90s era, early 2000s, felt like that about the Clippers. The thing that surprised me the most when I got there, man, they were really good. I mean, I think we beat the Lakers twice. You know, we had Lamar Odom. We had Elton Brand, Corey Maggette, Mike Oliver Candy. I mean, they had a good, talented young team that was fun to watch. But just, just couldn't get it together, man. I mean, and then later we find out about the whole Donald Sterling piece, who was the owner at that time when I played with him. So maybe that kind of explains some of the stuff that was going on. But I kind of knew then, you know, uh, I signed with the Clippers and ended up with the number 14. I'll never forget sitting in a hotel one day and I said, you know what, E, this is it for you, man, because you wore number 14 in high school. And I said, you haven't worn that number since and you got it again. This is probably it. And, and, and lo and behold, that was it. My last uh, team was was the Los Angeles Clippers in two thousand and two. Yep. You, you put a you put a bow on your your whole career, which actually in its own way is pretty great. The, the, uh, so Eldridge, now you know you're working with Pac twelve networks, but what's what's really interesting to me is for you to be a Washington alum. There's been a lot of debate among among the Pac twelve guys, and we, we've we've had our discussions. And I just before I let you go, the one thing that we can end on a positive note is that. Even though the Washington Huskies may not have had, you know, NCAA tournament success or births for that matter in the last few years, um, they have had some serious talent. And and two guys that I know you're quite familiar with their games, um, you know, and I wanted you to be able to speak on how good you think they are and what their potential is. And the first one is is the guy that's presumably the number one pick after this year, and that's Markel Fultz. And there's been debate about how much he wants to play, how much he loves the game. But just in terms of what you've seen from him talent-wise, what, what kind of potential do you think this kid really has? Oh, I think his potential is off the charts, Adam. You know, I'm in New Orleans right now, and we look – Anthony Davis was just named the MVP of the All-Star game. Now, granted, this is the worst All-Star game I've seen as far as <laughs> even attempting to try to play some defense, but he still had 50. I mean, if people remember, that guy was, the, was probably the fourth option on that Kentucky Wildcats team. Now he's one of the most potent scorers in all of the NBA. You look at Markel Folks, he's 18 years old. He doesn't turn 19 until May 29th or something like that. I mean, this guy is averaging 23 points, just around six rebounds, six assists a game, and he's still just a kid, man. I think the sky's the limit for him. He, you know, he, KO, Kevin O'Neal, you know, is, is on him. And I agree, he doesn't look like he's playing hard, but I just think it's his personnel. I'll tell you a quick story, Adam. I, I went and watched Markel Folks when I heard about him. I had some buddies in D.C. telling me it was the real deal. He was playing in a tournament called the the Les Schwab Classic in Portland, Oregon. I drove down. I'm watching the game. He pretty much just does nothing in the first half, and I'm thinking, this guy's overrated, man. Ain't no way in hell he's 
one of the number one players in the country. He comes out in the third quarter. He scores like 18 straight. He's blocking shots like LeBron James. I'm like, wow, this guy's got some talent. I watch him this year, and he kind of still looks like, you know, Adam, he looks like he, 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 just, he just woke up from a nap, like right before the game started, so he's still kind of sleepy. But when you think about the fact that as a true freshman, he's averaging 23-6-6, and six, that's phenomenal, man. I mean, I was three times all packed in. I never averaged that, even my senior year, when I was damn near a grown man. So when, so when you look at what that kid is doing, man, it's phenomenal. I think he's going to have a great NBA career. I think he's just going gonna, gonna to get better. And if he ever does wake up two or three hours before a game, and he's wide awake. They better watch out because he's gonna be a monster. <laughs> <laughs> who does who does this game remind you of? I haven't seen anybody with his skill set, man. I haven't seen a guy six four, six five, handle the rock like that. Doesn't get rattled. Got a dynamite jumper. Can take it to the whole dunk on you. You can make the razzle dazzle play. I mean, he's he's his own guy, Adam. I got I got the he, he, he Markel Folks is is a is a name that other kids are gonna want to be like. That's all I can tell you. I don't. Sometimes you see guys like Kobe was like the splitting image of Michael to me. It's the closest I've seen to Jordan. He patterned his game behind him and everything. This kid is unique, man, and he, he's his own player. That's all I can tell you. You know, I, I wish him the best. I hope he I hope he proves all the naysayers wrong and goes to the NBA and, and, and has an all-star type career, you know, where he makes the all-star team every year and becomes a superstar. I really hope that for him because he seems like a nice young man from the encounters. You know, I called one of his games. He was the player of the game. He had 35 the game I called. Did a post-game interview. Just seems like a really nice young man. I ran into him a couple other times, and I just wish him nothing but the best. Now, another guy that you're obviously very familiar with his game because you you follow the the high school basketball scene, and uh, especially up there in the Pacific Northwest. And Michael Porter will probably be the number one pick in next year's NBA draft. Um, for people who haven't seen Michael Porter, and he's playing right now for Brandon Roy, another another UW guy. Uh, in high school, what, what can you tell people about how good Michael Porter is? Well, first, I can tell you that you can take the might be out of the out of your statement. <laughs> <laughs> he is going to be the number one player, and, and, and he's phenomenal, man. I mean, for the people that hadn't seen him play, y'all going to think I'm crazy, but but I, I went and watched him in the fall league. It was me and two other buddies, you know. And first time he comes down, he shoots like a 28 foot three, nothing but net. Then he goes to the hole and shoots a finger roll like George Gervin. Then he dribbles to a whole entire team and dunks on a whole team. Then he comes down and shoots another three. Then somebody fouls and he makes two free throws. I mean, the kid's got the complete game. And my buddy stopped and asked. He said, all right, L, who do you compare him to? So I'm stopping. I'm thinking, he's 6'10". He shoots the ball like Klay Thompson. He can handle the rock. He goes to the hole like Kevin Durant and can dunk on somebody. And I came up with three names. I came up with LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and Carmelo Anthony. Oof. He's the greatest players in the NBA today. To me, he's the next KD, man. I mean, I mean, I know that sounds crazy. I know it's a lot of praise, but the kid is 6'10". When I say he got a jump shot like Klay Thompson's, hell, he got a jump. I'll use my own damn name. He shoots you like Eldridge and Chasm when Eldridge <laughs> and Chasm was at his best. Seriously. He can handle the rock. He can post up. He'll dunk on you. He can make his free throws. He plays D. He dives on the floor. I mean, the kid is phenomenal, man. He's the Kevin Durant. High school basketball—that's the best, probably the most honest comparison I can make. He's that good. Wow. Well, the last thing I want to leave you with is, you talked about these players. You talked about your playing career and and understanding, you know, sort of what it takes to be a good NBA player, and not just that, but but the understanding of where you need to come from. Um, 
how much thought have you put into, you know, working in an NBA front office or on an NBA coaching staff and, uh, you know, finding and, and developing the next Eldridge or Kasner? You know, I've thought about it a lot, Adam. I've, I've actually participated, you know, in the NBA Top 100 camp uh, that takes place at the University of Virginia. I participated in a, the NBA coaches program um, that takes place uh, at Portsmouth, Invitational Tournament for all the seniors. You know, I, I really wanted to get in there. I've never tried the, the college level, uh, and I don't know if I will. Um, but I, I, I love the game and I always have, man. I run my own basketball academy, so I'm kind of involved with kids in that capacity. You know, doing the Pac-12 stuff, man, it's just, it just been great for me because, you know, I, I love the Pac-12. The, the reason I love the Pac-12 is nobody else in the country, ESPN, Fox, they don't ever give us the love that we deserve. So now I get a chance to get on TV and tell everybody how great our conference is, how great our players are. You know, people can talk about Markel folks. You know, they know Lonzo Ball is good. But, I mean, you look at the history of the game, starting way back with Kareem. You know, you go to Gary Payton, Reggie Miller, Kevin Johnson. I mean, James Harden, Russell Westbrook right now. Some of the top players, not only this year in the league, but throughout the history of the league, has come out of the Pac-8, 10, 12 conference. So, for me to now have a chance to, to be on there and give our conference and our players the love they deserve, man, I'm delighted by it. Now, would I like to coach one day? I, I would love to. You know, but I don't know if it's going to happen. But if I can just stay connected to the game, if, the, if if all I can get is just being a commentator, then you know what, man? I, I love that, too. You know, I, I love the game of basketball. I love talking about it. Um, I would love to coach. I would love to help develop some guys. But so far, to this point, that hadn't been in the cards for me. Well, well look, you're doing a great job as, as a broadcaster with, uh, with Pac-12. And uh, this was amazing. You have some of the best stories out there. And, and, and your, your story... Uh, forget talking about the other guys, just what you've been through and, and the path that you took to get to the league, I think is, is fascinating. I think it'd be beneficial to every young guy to be able to hear the path that you took and the idea that you didn't give up on your dreams. So I thank you for, for sharing all that with me. Oh, no problem, man. You know, I think my last words I'll leave to all the young people out there. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how humble your beginnings are. You know, if you, you know God blesses us all with some kind of talent. And if your talent is basketball, just 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 work on your game. Keep working hard. You know the Lord always makes the way. That's one thing I know. You know, and I'll leave you with this final thing. You know, God may not come when you want, but one thing I know, I'm a living example. He's always right on time. Well, there you go. So you can follow Eldridge Rakasner at E Rakasner E R E C A S N E R on Twitter. And uh, Eldridge, once again, I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. No problem, man. Have a good day, man. You too, buddy. So that's Eldridge Kasner. Loved having him on the podcast. His story's incredibly inspirational and uh, obviously a heck of a guy. But his basketball career, I think, is one of the most underrated. Uh, and, and to see what he did, um, you know, when he was given a chance. And it was rare that he got the chance, but he always made the most of it. And uh, I'm uh, glad to be able to call Eldridge Kasner. A friend and, and glad to have him as a guest on the Great Point Podcast. As always, you can catch the Great Point Podcast on iTunes or wherever podcasts are heard. We'll catch you next time.